Chapter Seven of the Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Soldier. With a tow row 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 for the British Grenadiers, which of course means the English Grenadiers, inasmuch as there never were any Scottish Grenadiers. Today, however, the English do not sing this song their grandfathers delighted in it and the tune still survives as a soldier man's march but when the modern english wish to celebrate the english soldier vocally they do it in their own decadent bathotic way they have an idiot song called tommy atkins the chorus of which goes somewhat in this wise oh tommy atkins you're a good un heart and hand you're a credit to your nation and to your native land may your hand be ever ready may your heart be ever true god bless you tommy atkins here's your country's love to you and since the outbreak of the late war at any rate the english do not speak of soldiers but of tommies and the principal english poet has gone farther and dubbed them absent-minded beggars since the outbreak of the war too it has been necessary to issue from time to time words of caution to the great english public lord roberts a little bobs i suppose i should call him in the choice english fashion has on two or three occasions deemed it advisable to let it be known that his desire was that the great english public should discontinue the practice of treating cape-bound or returned tommies to alcoholic stimulants and substitute therefor mineral water or cocoa this was very wise on little bobs's part and it has no doubt saved at least two cape-bound or returned tommies from the degradation of an almighty drunk i mention this because it illustrates in an exceedingly quaint way the attitude of the english towards the soldier when there is war toward the soldier is absolutely the most popular kind of man in england in peace time an english soldier is commonly credited with being socially vile and unpresentable there is a popular conundrum which runs what is the difference between a soldier and a meerschaum pipe and the answer i regret to say is one is the scum of the earth and the other the scum of the sea tommy's place in the piping times of peace is just at the bottom of the social ladder there he must stay and drink four ale and smoke cheap shag and sit at the back of the gallery in places of amusement then war comes along and the english bosom expands to the sound of the distant drum and to the rumour of still more distant carnage who is it that's a-working this ere bloomin war blessed if it ain't our old friend tommy atkins fetch him out of the four ale bar at once the nation's heroes have no business in four ale bars the saloon bar is the place for them and the barmaid shall smile upon them and they shall have free drinks and free cigars till all's blue for they are the nation's heroes and they deserve well their country furthermore if they wish to visit those great and glorious centres of enlightened entertainment commonly called the halls they shall no longer be stuffed obscurely away in the rear portion of the gallery but they shall come out into the light of things they shall come blushingly and amid acclaim into the pit or the stalls or for that matter into any part of the house throughout the war this has been so it was so till yesterday but the ancient english smugness has begun to assert itself once more and tommy dear tommy god bless you tommy in fact finds staring him in the face as of yore soldiers in uniform not served in this compartment 
Soldiers in uniform cannot be admitted to any part of this theatre except the gallery. The English Kipling hit the whole matter off in his vulgar way when he wrote Tommy. I went into a theatre as sober as could be. They gave a drunk civilian room, but they hadn't none for me. They sent me to a gallery around the music halls. But when it comes to fightin', Lord, they'll shove me in the stalls. For it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy wait outside. But it's special train for Atkins when the soldier's on the tide. The troop ship's on the tide, my boys, the troop ship's on the tide. Oh, it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. We were told that this war, if it were doing England no other good, was at least bringing her to a right understanding of the soldier-man. It was teaching her to take him by the hand, to recognize in him a creditable son and an essential factor in the state. It has ended in the way in which pretty well every English revival does end, namely in smoke. Though England has as much need of the soldier, and is as much dependent upon him for peace and security as any other nation, she has never been able, excepting, as I have said, in time of war, to bring her greedy mind to the pass of doing him the smallest honour or of rendering to him that measure of social credit which is obviously his by right that the english tommy is not altogether a delectable person however goes i think without saying according to general buller and other more or less competent authorities the men in south africa were splendid i do not doubt it in the least on the other hand the returns from that country have not struck one as reaching a high standard of savouriness or manliness and however splendid he may have been as a campaigner as an ex-campaigner the english tommy has scarcely shown so that in a sense the changed attitude of the english public mind towards him is not to be wondered at elsewhere in this essay i have pointed out that the late war has not reflected any too much credit upon that chiefest of snobs the english military officer to go into the army has long been considered good form among the english barbarians and to be an officer in a swagger regiment may be reckoned one of the best passports to english society it gives a man a tone and puts him on a footing with the highest because an officer is a gentleman in a very special sense but it is well known that during the past half-century or so the English barbarians have been too prone to put their sons into the army for social considerations only, and without regard to their qualification or call for the profession of arms. And in the long result it has come to pass that the English army is officered by men who know as little as possible and care a great deal less about their profession, and are compelled to leave the instruction, and as often as not the leadership, of their men to non-commissioned officers. Over and over again in the South African campaign, it was the commissioned officer who blundered and brought about disaster, and the non-commissioned officers and the horse-sense of the rank and file that saved whatever of the situation there might be left to save. Probably the true history of the British reverses, major and minor, in South Africa will never be made public but i believe it can be shown that in almost every instance it was the incapacity or remissness of the english commissioned officer which lay at the root of the trouble the fact is that the monocled montebank who is in the army don't you know seldom or never understands his job 
he is too busy messing and dancing and flirting and philandering and racing and gambling and speeding the time merrily ever to learn it that the honour of britain and the lives of englishmen scotsmen and irishmen should be in his listless damp hand for even as long as five minutes is an intolerable scandal that he should haw and haw and yaw and yaw on this barrack square and take a salary out of the public purse for doing it shows exactly how persistently stupid the english can be of course the common reply to any attack upon these shallow-pated incompetence is that you must have gentlemen for the king's commissions and that the pay the king's commissions carry is so inadequate that no gentleman unpossessed of private means can afford to take one this is a very pretty argument and exceedingly english the money will not run to capable men therefore let us fling it away on fools army reform sweeping changes at the war office new army regulations an army on a business footing and so on and so forth are always being clamoured for by the english people and always being promised by the english government but until the day when the granting of commissions and promotion are as little dependent upon social influence and the influence of money as advancement in the law or advancement in the arts the english army will remain just where it is and just as rotten as it is for downright childishness the modern english soldier whether he be officer or file man has perhaps no compeer when the south african war broke out tommy and his officers were men of scarlet and pipe clay and gold lace and magnificent headdresses also all drill was in close order you were to shove in your infantry first supported by your artillery and deliver your last brilliant stroke with your cavalry the men should go into the fray with bands playing flags flying and dressed as for parade you commenced operations with move number one the enemy would assuredly reply with move number two you would then rush in with move number three there would be a famous victory and the streets of london would be illuminated at great expense in south africa matters did not quite pan out that way the enemy declined absolutely to play the stereotyped war game for the very simple reason that they did not know it and that south africa is not quite of the contour of a chessboard and so the english had to change their cherished system and to learn to ride and to throw their pretty uniforms into the old clothes baskets and to get out of their old drill into a drill which was no drill at all and to give up resting their last hope on the british square and to get accustomed to deadly conflict with an enemy whom they never saw and who never took the trouble to inform them whether they had beaten him or not it was all very trying and all very bewildering and it is to the credit of the english army that in the course of a year or two it did actually manage to understand the precise nature of the work cut out for it and made some show of dealing with it in a workmanlike way here was a lesson for us and we learned it an englishman you know can learn anything when he makes up his mind to it and he has learned this south african lesson thoroughly well so well indeed that it looks like being the only lesson he will be able to repeat any time in the next half century for what has he done well to judge by appearances we must reason this way 
i was not prepared for this south african business it was a new thing to me it gave me a new notion of the whole art and practice of war the old authorities were clean out of it therefore i solemnly abjure the old authorities for the future i wear slouch hats and khaki and puttees and a jacket full of pockets and i drill for the express notion that i may some day meet a boer farmer the entire sartorial and general aspect of my army shall be remodeled on lines which might induce one to think that the sole enemy of mankind was mr kruger and the great military centre of the world was pretoria it does not seem to occur to the poor body that his next great trial is not in the least likely to overtake him in south africa he has had to fight on the continent of europe before to-day and i shall not be surprised if he has to do it again before many years have passed over his head yet wherever his next large fighting has to be done you will find that he will sail into it in his good old infantile stupid english way armed cap a pie for the special destruction of boars it is just gross want of sense and that is all that can be said for it chapter eight the navy since trafalgar the english navy has been the apple of the englishman's eye he holds that the english power is a sea power that these leviathans afloat the king's ships are his first line of defence and that so long as he keeps the english navy up to the mark he can defy the world his method of keeping it up to the mark is most singular it consists of tinkering with old ships generation after generation laying down new ones which seemingly never get finished and of being chronically short of men the naval critics of england may be divided sharply into two camps in the one we have a number of gentlemen who are naval critics simply because they happen to be connected with newspapers these young persons are naturally anxious to do the best that can be done for their papers and for themselves they recognize that if they are to be in a position to obtain immediate and first-hand information not to say exclusive information as to naval doings they must stand well with the admiralty and the authorities the admiralty and the authorities are not in need of adverse critics what they like and what they will have are smiley wily reporters who will swear with the official word see with the official eye and take the rest for granted in the other camp of naval critics you have a bright collection of book compilers naval architects and patent mongers all of which have some sort of fad to exploit or some private axe to grind hence the amiable english taxpayer knows just as much at the present moment about his navy as he knew three years ago about his army in spite of the perverted assurances of mr kipling and of the ill-written anti-scare manifestos of the morning papers the english taxpayer knows in his heart that all is not so well as it might be with the english navy what is wrong the english taxpayer cannot tell you but there it is and he has a sort of feeling that when the big sea tussle comes the english navy being tried will be found wanting herein i think he shows great prescience the superstition to the effect that the english rule the waves has of late begun to be known for what it is there are nowadays other richmonds in the field all bent on doing a little wave ruling on their own account and after the first start of surprise and astonishment the sleepy slack undiscerning englishman has just let things go on as they were 
and has just dilly-dallied what time the new wave rulers were building and equipping the finest battleships that modern science can put afloat and making arrangements for the acquisition of as much naval supremacy as they can lay their hands on and whether the english navy be or not be as efficient as the admiralty and the admirals would have us believe it is quite certain that in consequence of budding wave rulers the english navy is not on the whole so formidable a weapon or so impregnable a defence as it ought to be the fact is that in the matter of naval strength offensive and defensive the english are just a quarter of a century behind they slept whilst their good friends the french the russians and the germans were climbing upward in the dark and when they woke it was to perceive that another navy had sprung into existence by the side of the english navy and that the task of catching up of putting the old navy into a position of absolute supremacy over the new was well-nigh an impossible one you cannot build line of battleships in an hour furthermore the yards of england though capable of extraordinary achievements are not capable of a greater output than the yards of france russia and germany conjoined half a century ago the english had a distinct and preponderating start when the other powers began to show increased activity in the matter of shipbuilding the english said oh, it is of no consequence let em build they threw their start clean away the probabilities are that they will never be able to regain it. Quite apart from the large general question, however, and granting that on paper England's sea power is equal to that of any three powers combined, it cannot have escaped the attention of the interested that the foreign naval experts view our whole flotilla with a singular calm, and appear to be quite amused when we talk of naval efficiency and advancement it is pretty certain that this calm and this amusement are not based entirely in either ignorance or arrogance ships built and fitted in continental yards may lack the advantage of being english built but they are fighting ships nevertheless and they have not much to lose by comparison with the best english fighting ships even when the comparison is made by english experts indeed it is very much open to question whether some of the continental ships are not a long way ahead of some of the best english ships in destructive power and possibilities for fight of course the common reply to this is that it is no good having a fine machine unless you have the right man to handle it and jack of course the honest english jack is the only man in the world that really knows how to handle fighting ships well it may be so or it may not be so the englishman will undoubtedly keep his engines going and stick to his guns till chaos engulfs him it seems possible too that he has made himself thoroughly familiar with every detail of the machine he has got to work and that he knows his business in a way which leaves precious little room for more intimate knowledge in spite of all this however it cannot be denied that the continental navy man is slowly but surely creeping up to the english standard that as a rule he is a man of better family than the english navyman that his conditions of service are more favourable and that his food and accommodation are better are all in his favour he may lack the steadiness and the grit of the old original english hearts of oak still he is coming on and making progress whereas the old original english hearts of oak do not appear to be getting much forwarder 
besides it is well known that the english do not possess anything like enough of them and those whom they do possess have such a love for the service that they take particularly good care to warn would-be recruits off it from time immemorial the english have made a point of treating the saviors of their country meanly and shabbily in the crimea the english troops were half starved and went about in rags while a lot of broad-shouldered genial englishmen made fortunes out of army contracts it was the same in the transvaal and it will be the same whenever england is at war in peacetime she does manage to keep her soldiers and sailors decently dressed but it is notorious that she nips them in the paunch and that the roast beef and plum pudding and flagons of october which are supposed to be the meat and drink of john bull are not considered good for his brave defenders a beef-fed army and a beef-fed navy are what englishmen believe they get for their money the rank and file of the army and navy are better informed with a navy that is undersized undermanned underfed and underpaid the english chances of triumph when her real strength is put to the test are problematical meanwhile we may comfort ourselves with mr kipling and the daily telegraph End of chapter eight